Ian Kilkelly, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. This time we're picking up part two of our discussion of the fourth act of Kentucky Route Zero. If you didn't catch the first couple of episodes in this series, I'd recommend pausing this one, going back and starting from there. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Radvansky Center, um, which uh, at which the some of the folks get off uh, the boat to make a quick buck. Um, this name uh, it seems to be a reference to Gabriel Radvansky, uh, who is a, a somebody who does a lot of work in cognition, brain, and behavior. Apparently, um, I didn't know that before before playing this, but hey. Um, so this 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 scene in particular is all about memory, right? Because uh, it's. It's taking the form of security footage being reviewed by two new characters, Mimi and Jen. It's uh, partially security footage and partially the footage that the characters were paid to make. Uh, the, the sort of quest questionnaire response footage uh, that was yeah, found behind an old vending machine uh, that they took out of the uh, out of the central area. So this is like sometime later in the future, probably like in the nineties, you would say, cause they're talking about CDs a lot. Um, and, and they're, they're, they're revisiting, uh, they're revisiting this footage that was lost, uh, and recorded about, um, you know, the main characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it, it sets up kind of an interesting thing here where, um, you start to wonder, actually, like, because, like, the the um, the main trick here is that they're making a quick buck by taking these questionnaires, and they got the, the footage to go with it, um, and so they're reviewing the questionnaires and like processing them. These are is a box of unprocessed stuff. Um, again, like found behind the old vending machine, which Jen doesn't remember. So Mimi and Jen have been working here for how long? And a lot of this conversation actually kind of revolves around these like details of their own work lives that either one of them or the other can't remember. And it's like. It's like, oh, you know, you remember that intern, right? It's like, no, who? It's like, you know, you know the one, the what was his name, John? You know, the guy. He's like, no, I, I don't remember that. And like, the, the first time I played through this, I got this very subtle sense that maybe what's going on is that Mimi is testing Jen's memory. It was much later, but then this time around, I, I didn't get the same strong impression that that was what was happening. But maybe, maybe it's just a repeated theme of like the fallibility of memory or something. I don't know. Maybe it's the echo that does this to people. It just fucking deletes their mind, you know? Maybe. But they're, uh, the center is like an annex or like a, a department of the university that Will used to work at. Um, so uh, it's... Uh, and uh, presumably um, Weaver's parents as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that would make sense, definitely. Um, so a lot of the action here follows Shannon uh, as she's doing her questionnaires, and it starts off in a room, and she's like inspecting posters and stuff on the walls. Um, and the Mimi and Jen are like pr- trying to process the questionnaire by like you know Jen is like okay what what did she answer for X and so on. There's something very funny here in that like 
they're hilariously overreading the significance of the answers, you know, because like it's like, uh, oh, what what demographic? What what did she fill in for the demographic question? And the question is actually, what's the earliest thing you remember? To which, like Shannon can respond, I remember a birdcage because that's quite resonant with the story. And then they take that to mean that she's in her mid twenties, which probably isn't the case. And also, like, how would you get that from remembering a birdcage? <laughs> Yeah, it's total non sequitur, just like absolute like pseudoscience bullshit um, that they're doing here. It's fabulous. Um, Mimi, however, recognizes the Marquez name um, and recognizes it from uh, WebPTV, recognizes Weaver. And we get some of the stuff about Weaver leaving on weird terms. Um, and, and some of the backstory for, for WebP, um, that it's like forcibly funded by Consolidated Power as a community. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like when uh, like the, the Lottery Corporation uh, funds like charitable work in a community, right? Like this is a kind of like, well, you got to pay your debt to society sort of thing. Yeah, which, yeah, it's starting to establish it as a small island of, uh, of freedom. Uh forcibly funded by the, the power company. Um, we also note that it's an, it was destroyed in a flood, um, which you might start to think is probably the flood that Weaver was referring to, um, washing things away. Um, this, this, this thing with WFP and the flood and so on is a, a picture that will be painted over the course of the act and it kind of, it accumulates in that kind of way um, uh, through this sort of dialogue. Um, they flip over to the dock um, where this sort of remark that like Conway kind of looks like one of the hard times boys, uh, but not, not really, not entirely, uh, which is, I guess, astute. I guess they, they can't really see the skeleton arm either perhaps. Um, um, and we also start this thing with like Mimi's maybe recognizing Will and Jen not recognizing him, um, which yeah, ultimately becomes that like, um, what's the explanation for this ultimately? Oh yeah. That like Mimi was actually in university with Will or like Will, Will was one of the teachers. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think it's what is it? Mimi is older, and like, is it like one of them? They're like, oh, you like you went to school back in the Paleolithic era, and he's like, oh, fuck you, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that's when Will was teaching French literature at the university. Uh, or no, no, it's when he was a he was a janitor there. Yeah, when he was a janitor. Yeah, um, but they kind of make a big thing of like the difficulty of recalling this like it's kind of it's spread out across a number of number of different shots but um but hey it ultimately be ends up being that she does recognize will from college and then she relays this really interesting uh, bit of detail that uh, in her college days in her final year her boyfriend died in a roofing accident and his name was charlie um so another connection yeah so it's it's kind of a dramatic irony right where it's like mimi can't recognize uh, Conway, who is actually the person who is responsible for her boyfriend's death. Indeed. Um, um, the uh, We get more of the WebP stuff in the TV room where Shannon has to like answer these questions about what was displayed on, on television sets throughout the room. Um, but Shannon has this interesting thing like that. Um, it's her preferred window into the world. Um, that's her, her obsession with TVs. Um, Mimi tells us about... Um, Weaver's interventions with the broadcasts. So, like, Mimi worked at WebPTV as well. That's that's uh, some of the connection there. Um, that's why she recognizes the, the connection with Weaver to the studio also. Uh, but Weaver, over the years after she disappeared, would hijack the broadcasts and um, 
that just black them out and, and broadcast her message. Um, there's a really interesting detail, though, that um, for Mimi, it was very clear that the broadcast, the, that the tape had been shot in the WFP studio, but it had different subtitles. It had, the, the subtitles on display were not from the subtitling machine they had. So she hypothesizes that she must have recorded the message and then taken it somewhere else to be t- to be titled and then broadcast it from somewhere else again. Yeah, which is, I don't know, I mean, like, we don't know where Weaver is now, so... Maybe Weaver's out there, probably she's a weird TV ghost. Yeah, indeed. Um, this is also where Mimi notes the sense of urgency or desperation or crisis in the repeated broadcast of the same message, that she was, like, desperately trying to get this through to someone, um, which maybe, I don't know, makes a certain kind of sense, um, that, like, tonight was the final broadcast that actually got through. She also does note that the last broadcast was precisely before the building was destroyed by the flood. Yeah, lucky, lucky timing. Um, there's a fun little scene then with like a, there's a phone booth in the middle of the room for some reason. Um, Shannon misdials a number and gets through to a person who's an orp- orthopedic therapist. Um, they, they have a little back and forth and there's a kind of, um, but it, it finishes off with a very f- interesting little bit from the therapist, right? That like he works on, uh, rehabilitation after injuries, right? And he, he, he relays the story about like a, somebody who had a, um, a hand injury uh, on the job, right? They were operating some very de- delicate machinery and got their, their hand screwed up or whatever. And that, you know, you, you, you do your therapy and you recover the dexterity and like you can, you know, shuffle a deck of cards with one hand or whatever. But then this person, when they sat down at the machine again, just couldn't operate it. Um, and realized that all of the skill of operating that machine was actually in the hand and in those muscles, and that once they were severed and fucked up, that just was irre- irretrievably lost. Yeah, that's where, like, uh, the orthopedic therapist at the start of the conversation's like, oh, well, I, I'm not so sure the mind actually exists, and this is his, this is his justification. It's like, oh, no, like, the memory was in the hand. It wasn't in your brain, you know? So it's all an, it's all an aggregation of muscle memory, yeah. The the, the self is distributed throughout the muscles. Yeah, um, it's, it's fun. So I don't know what it says about Conway. Mm, yeah, suppose so. You know, uh, it's got to be something irretrievably lost with the skeleton arms. Uh, there's also a fun little a subplot here of uh, they had a cat at the at the state at the um, Radvansky Center around that time uh, that went missing. Um, uh, the cat's name was Coconut. It um, shows up on the tape a couple of times, but at the towards the end, it shows up on the tape of the monitoring room where um, uh, Coconut follows Ezra out and seeming, seems to go on the boat with them. And so they're like, oh, that's where the cat went. That's fine. Yeah, they, they, they didn't want to take care of the cat, so they created a fake segment of the test where the participant had to feed the cat, and then this caused the cat to follow Shannon out. <laughs> Oh, lovely. It's like, oh, is that ethical? Oh, it's just kind of bullshit <laughs> university stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, they were skiving on their um, on their duties. I guess, I mean, like, there's nobody around when they're doing this test, right? It's like, where the fuck are these people? Like, are they just, like, skiving, you know? It's a very cute scene. Um, at the end of the scene, though, uh, we flip back to the dock, uh, which we see that Conway is actually with the skeleton boys, um, but they glitch out. Um, the, the tape actually glitches as the other characters come into view. Um, so that um, I think Mimi and Jen do conclude, oh, yeah, he was with the distillery. That makes sense. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's a cute scene. Um, I think that's maybe one of these ones that's maybe a bit on the long side, even though like the content is quite good. Um, but it, it adds up. It, it, it definitely adds up in this act to to being a lot of content and a lot of clock time um, to get through. But hey, um, what's the alternative scene for this one? The card game, which has um, Ezra teaching Kate and Junebug a memory game on the on the the on the boat. Um, this really fun, I don't know, like a fun little thing about like what Kate calls like soggy, soggy brain, uh, which is clearly ADHD, I guess, uh, from my reading, but shrug, you know, it, it's not a plot important scene. That's just unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, it's nice for Ezra. Like, uh, I think like some, some of these alternative scenes give you a lot of Ezra time and Ezra being interacted with by many of the other members of the cast. So it's not, it's not completely pointless. Um, but I wonder, like, if you if you just do the on boat scenes, you wouldn't get the the Johnny and Junebug stuff with Ezra, would you? Ah, it seems like a bad trade, you know. Yeah, I I mostly did the on boat scenes when I played through this the first time, and yeah, I remember this chapter being like, huh, there's a lot of that that didn't have much to it. <laughs> yeah, see, like that that's the thing that like like the, the, this time around when I did my on boat run, I was like struck by how short it can be if you do the on boat run. Like, there's there's not much to those scenes. And also, the title card is always the Mucky Mammoth. You know, like, it's... Uh, I uh, I wonder if... I wonder if they're leaning on the assumption that most players will probably mostly go off the boat. Or, I don't know. I, 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 I want to pick the brains of the person who played this once and only did the on-boat scenes and then never really bothered to check any of the other stuff, you know? Um... That might not have been a terribly satisfying playthrough, but who knows, you know. Maybe you're supposed to take the hint that you have to do it twice. That's possible, too. You definitely you definitely miss some important information if you uh, if you take the boat route. Yeah, although you get, you gain some important information, like the, the Weaver text is pretty revelatory, so it's not it's not a total wash. Um, although I, I still marvel at the audacity of just having a five-second fucking, fucking clip of dog sleeping as, like, an entire scene. That's a that's a bold move, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, when we go down the river, uh, Will tells us about an open air art gallery that we've passed, um, which has uh, some of the pictures, some of the photographs on display are very clearly of a neighborhood that was leveled to make room for a museum project. Um, so it was the place that was flattened to make room for the museum of reclaimed. Um, no, what the fuck was that? What, what, what was that place called? Museum of Dwellings. Uh, yes, that's right. The Museum of Dwellings. Yeah. Not like reclaimed dwellings or anything like that. If you don't do the Radvansky Center scene, Will tells you about a book he's reading with characters named Mimi and Jen that is, in some of its content, fairly similar to the what's going on at the Radvansky Center. Um, I, I don't know what that's meant to mean. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Is it just Will being weird? I think it's probably timey-wimey stuff. I don't know. <laughs> it's magical realism. Whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Um, let's see. Next, the fifth set of scenes, um, our off-boat scene is a grove uh, where Kate and Ezra go hunting for mushrooms. Um, there's a fun trick here with parallel text readouts um, that you can advance. I think you can advance these in parallel. It's like an internal monologue for both uh, Kate and Ezra. Um and there's some synchronization points, but in general, you can you can see the two the two sets of texts um, in parallel with each other. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I do remember that. So this time I took the um, alternative boat uh, because um, I took the boat path because uh, or on, on number five because the first time I played I did go to the grove. Um, yeah, so it's uh, I was just like, ooh, a grove. I want to <laughs> check that out. Yeah, strong grove action. Uh, go mushroom picking. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's cute, right? Like, cause it's it's nice little bit of um, it's it's more Ezra time, I guess. Your, your playthrough must have been very heavy on Ezra then, in that case, because um, yeah, it's kind of what I was looking for the first time I played through this act, as I was trying to get the most Ezra content I could. That does seem like a very valid thing to want, right? Like, I think that's because I mean, I, I yeah, there's a gravitational pull that pulls me towards getting off the boat to see the the scenes, but like, it's totally valid for like just like I want to hear more of this Ezra kid, you know after they've been picked up in Act 2, you know? Yeah, because when I played um, Act 3 and I did uh, Xanadu, I uh, always chose the Ezra answers on what to do in the game. So I was kind of like, oh, I want more Ezra content when I play through here the first time. That's very cool. Yeah, it's... Um... I'd say that, that's, that seems like a very fun way to fun way to play it, but the the inner dialogues here are um, uh, on Kate's side. It's her memory of um, of time in hospital um, that like is after losing her baby, um, basically, and hearing about um, alternative medicine from a hot dog stand outside the hospital, um, and that's how she gets into that's how she gets into mushrooms and gets into being a doula ultimately, um, which is very affecting because like it's uh, there's some lines there about like the, these. Um, the sort of clinical way that doctors treat the whole thing, because like she had to live through this thing of like just having people explain the miscarriage back to her um, in this very clinical way uh, that they clearly didn't understand her or her needs in that moment at all, and she kind of resolved to never or resolved to like help help people with that experience and to uh, add that human touch to things um, and to not be a kind of medical drone. So it's it's a, it's a very nice little bit of insight into um, a character that doesn't stick with us for very long. No, she's just kind of here for this act and then going again. I think her obsession with mushrooms is very cute as well because, like, she's—it's all these like weird and wacky types of mushrooms, and she has this encyclopedic knowledge. Yeah, like when when she's talking to her client uh, in the previous phone scene about um, you know discomfort that she's having um, with her pregnancy. Uh, Kate is like, "Oh yeah, you should take you know this mushroom or that mushroom, the other one." You can choose between a few different options and whatever you choose, the client is just like, um, maybe not like, maybe I'll just have a lie down or something. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I, I don't know if I'm into like your weird mushroom stuff so much, but I appreciate the phone call. Yeah. I think that's why she's thrilled to have Ezra here as well. Cause like she can, like Ezra will take her seriously basically. Um, and we'll listen to, um, to, to all this stuff um ezra's memories um are of home and family uh but it's all quite dark right like it's um he would go play in the woods behind the house to get out of um the, the house he describes as being just very cold in general uh that it, it seemed it seemed to soak up the cold um um and he's he's trying to get away from arguments at home um it's, it's generally a very cold and dreary vibe which i guess isn't helped by hunting for mushrooms in a cave below kentucky you know yeah, it's it's this this bit kind of reminds me a bit of like uh, the binding of Isaac, you know, sort of abusive home, uh, bad child, bad childhood, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ezra also 
I think after reconvening, the, 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 the two characters reconvene and compare notes on what mushrooms they found, um, and then have further daydreaming, um, where Ezra is reminiscing about his parents and specifically that like his dad was a person who sold windows um, during the construction boom and then got wiped out by the crash. Um, and he has this very specific memory of waking in the middle of the night or being woken in the middle of the night to leave uh, home that um, the dad is saying, we got to go stay at the bus station for a while. So, yeah, it's dark, you know. Poor Ezra. Capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Um, Hope his parents didn't get taken by the skeletons, but, you know, seems likely, considering it was a death thing. Yeah. But that absolutely could be the case. Oh, yeah, I'd always thought they'd been arrested, but I guess skeletons is, is very likely as well. Uh, glad Ezra didn't get snared. Um, at this late part in the scene... Um, we to hear this fucking bizarre like chorus of cats just mewing um, as a boat drifts in front of our vision. Uh, this is the Iron Pariah that Will would have told us about on the phone, um, which is a, a lost battleship that is now apparently piloted by cats. Um, very weird. Yes, it's <laughs> it's um, it's a Civil War era. Uh, uh, what do you call those? Um, not dreadnoughts, but. Uh, Ironside, is it? Uh, but, you know, those are those super early uh, uh, metal warships um, th- that they had in the Civil War. Um, uh, and uh, basically the story there is that, like, he says, uh, Will says on the phone that um, it fought in the war, but neither side wanted to claim it. Um, and, uh, it's just been drifting along the echo and apparently has become a colony of cats. <laughs> That's got really good, um, like cursed haunted battleship vibes that like nobody wanted to claim it on either side. It just, it just fought in general, you know, <laughs> cursed ship. Um, yeah, he, he sort of talks about how it's like, you know, it's a kind of a ghost ship and it has like weird ominous vibes to it and stuff. Yeah. And what's, what's fun as well is that, um, it becomes apparent that, uh, neither Kate nor Ezra can hear the cats from over on the shore. That we can hear them because they're close to the camera. Uh, what's the alternative for this one? Uh, for scene five. Oh, this is this is Will takes a nap, which um, sounds fucking riveting. I, c- I can now see why he definitely got off the boat for this one. Um, <laughs> um, so while they go, uh, while Kate goes ashore for the mushrooms, Ezra uh, has to wake up Will to um, take the helm. Um, you can record some sounds on the way down, which is which is quite fun. Um, but Will is listening to a tape of a lecture called "The History of History." No, wait, "History of the Philosophy of Death." While he's while he's having his nap, um, were you familiar with any of this stuff with Edison and like life units and stuff? No, not at all. Uh, I know that like you know uh, when electricity was first discovered, there was sort of like weird pseudoscience theories about like. Well, what is this strange force that is animating life? You know, uh, and there's lots of work done on that in physiology. Um, I remember because I was, I did a um, a job at Kyoto University uh, studying some of like the late 19th century history of uh, physiology, um, and some of this stuff came up at that time. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just kind of. Edison sort of had this idea that like, oh yeah, life units are what animates people and they can like be transferred from one being to the next um, as like sort of, you know, 
the cycle of life carries on and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is in the tape that we see played out in the text or if it's something I read on the Wikipedia or something, but like Edison kind of describes the life units as like proletarian. Like there's an active productive force going on here, which is very interesting. Yes. It's, it's in the, um, it's in the, in the recording. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it's just, it's a fun sort of thing of like this, um, yeah, like productive active life force that's like marshaled by a sort of higher power into a, into a, like a territorialized unit. It's a, there's a fun crossing of the levels of metaphor there. Um, I like the, the, the sort of soul atoms are, are proletarians of a kind. The, uh, there's a fun detail as well that like, uh, on the tape, a student asks a question and this, this James that asked the question is James B. Carrington. Um, I, I don't remember the question being particularly interesting or the answer. So I don't know. I don't really have anything in the notes for that, but, um, it's apparently a thing. So this is another uh, connection back to those like old university days that keep coming up in this game, right? Yeah. I wonder if this is a tape. It's like a tape from Will's university days. He taped it while he was there, you know, rather than being like something you'd buy at a Waterstones or whatever. Oh, I, I think it was just like, yeah, he had some way of getting a hold of these uh, lectures. Um, I forget what it was exactly, but it's sort of like a like Samus dot kind of like <laughs> unauthorized like lecture r- archive that he accessed. He, he goes on a fucking FTP site to get the the rare rare bootlegs, you know. <laughs> oh, good. Um, when Will wakes up, then he uh, recounts a dream of being a cat on board the Iron Pariah. You know, it's more this whimsical kind of stuff that they're doing constantly in this in this in this act. Um, but yeah, it's good. Um, and then we come to the big one, scene six, which is mandatory, because if you try to stay on the boat, uh, you'll be interrupted and kicked off the boat to go help Conway on this delivery. I think I tried to stay on the boat both times that that I played this. And both times I fell for, I was like, oh, wait, I don't have to go through this scene? Oh, what a relief. But no, you do. You do. It's mandatory. Um, is this the one where uh, if you stay on the boat, Shannon is helping will make a mushroom soup and then she gets kicked off so there's there's an interesting detail there where um will is telling her about the recipe and um or is it this recipe or a different one where he's like he uh he doesn't learn the recipe he has taken lessons from an expert amnesiac is it is that what it is yeah so it's it's he got the recipe from uh ida who we'll see in the next scene um, for, you know, this, the soup, but he had to promise to forget it. Yeah. So he has to phone her up every time or something and then promise to forget it after he puts the phone down. Yeah. And so then that's where he consulted an expert amnesiac to learn how to forget things with, you know, great e- efficacy. That is quite good. <laughs> uh, so, so it's kind of like they have like this tape in the other room of how to make the thing. Uh, on on VHS and then they watch it or he watches it and I guess forgets it again but he he used to just be kind of fucking around with his soup like like uh um like you know uh who was it um uh the captain Kate uh is like you know are you making it like what are you doing we're just about to go to the restaurant and he's like oh this is for tomorrow he's like well make sure you finish it because last time it was just this gross sludge (laughs) yeah 
that you ended up making because you forgot it on the stove, you know? She had to fucking clean up this pot of, like, protein paste <laughs> at the end of it, yeah. Um, so, like, it, it, it's blurring the lines wonderfully between, like, is, is Will... Is Will just trolling them, or is he genuinely kind of bonkers and, like, very forgetful naturally? Because, like, he, he would just forget to attend to the soup and, and so on. Um, oh, but it also it pulls on this thing again of, like, this... There's something... There's, there's like... Will has an antagonistic attitude towards his own memory. That's right, that's right. Uh, like, he, he wants to forget things. Which is similar to Conway, right? But it's mm, less less bad in in will maybe yeah he's like way more mellow right um and i just wanted to say that yeah the the vhs is actually like a recording of the recipe uh because shannon shannon watches it in the one room and then goes over to the other room and it's like oh did you add the spices and he's like uh what spices like i I don't know i threw some i threw some stuff in there that i found on the counter That soup is going to taste like shit. It's going to be terrible. Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a very good soup. I would not trust him. Uh, but either way, uh, Shannon has to accompany Conway on a dinghy to make a delivery to the Echo River Central Exchange. On the way out, Kate reminds them to keep an eye out for a memorial and to have a little look at a bat sanctuary as they pass through. Uh, they're looking for Poppy at the exchange. And uh, yeah, here's a flashlight. Get to work. Um this is a very slow little scene uh, as we idle our way through the um, through the, this, this this water. It's um, it's flooded up to almost the top of these trees, these like skeletal trees, um, and these these telephone poles were almost at the top of them. So this this place has been flooded out, um, which is just a uh, and be, being only lit by the flashlight is really just really cool and evocative. Uh, so the first thing we come to is this memorial. Um, it's surrounded by helmets sort of bobbing in the water. Um, and, uh, the text that is on the memorial is all in capital letters. Uh, it's like an all caps message, uh, with no punctuation. So I'll try to read it here. We claim these helmets in the names of the folks who wore them and we place them here in their memory, but also as a spit in the greedy green eye of that power company who bought up our old mine and traded our brothers and sisters safety for a little more yield, but only yielded 28 good men and women dead when the walls collapsed and the tunnels filled with water. Their lungs were black, but now they're washed clean and full of water, too, and swept through hidden tunnels into some awful cave we never will find. And so we guess the water buried them for us. So let this here be the marker for their grave. And if any son of a bitch from that power company wants to take back these helmets as company property, you just try it and see what will happen. Boom. It's fantastic. I kind of love also how it like it's very clearly like ad libbed. Because, like, you, you can imagine somebody being on the phone to, like, an engraver, and they're like, okay, what do you want on the sign? And the, the guy just ad-libs it, and he's, like, fucking spitting into the phone. He's like, any son of a bitch from that fucking power company tries to take it. And the guy just, like, transcribes that, like, verbatim. He's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, so Conway gets into a conversation with Shannon about this, and is like, oh, you know, how do you feel about this whole thing? And, like, oh, those, oh, that's, like, those must be the people that were down in that cave that we found earlier, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, sort of asks her how she feels about it. And, of course, the correct answer is you don't forget anger like that. Um, and he's like, oh, that's that's a good thing, you know. 
time time just makes you forget things and so you got to have memorials to remember them and it's kind of like well no one's gonna remember me um yeah yeah and there's like a kind of double planet as well where they're like the memorial memorializes it as well but like for shannon the rage is the memorial they're like that's that's that that's the that's the living uh memorial to um to, to those people. I mean, this this isn't this is under this isn't a fucking flooded basement somewhere that no probably nobody's going to really see. But the um, the rage that you can carry in your heart forever that's the that's the true memorial. Yeah, and it's the only time that um, we see anyone react to what capital does with anger or like honest emotion, whereas almost in like the entire rest of the game it's just about like suppressing it or feeling melancholy or trying to forget it um this is a very raw statement of anger uh that is yeah unique in this in this game it's fantastic you know um it's a it's a really wonderful little moment also that like the um the helmets are the helmets are kind of piled up in the center with the 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 plaque, but they're they're spilling over into the water. Um, there's like there's there's so many fatalities that can't be actually piled up on the uh, on the memorial. It's um it's another this physical systems thing they're doing where there's just like a bunch of these objects floating around in the water. Um, which funnily enough can it can slow your boat down to a fucking crawl if it can't navigate through them. Um, which I found this time around there is like a full ten minutes of wait, waiting for the boat to pull into the uh, the correct spot. Um, but this this is really affecting. It's good. Yeah, it is. It is um, absolutely. Uh, if you play this game on PC, obviously, as with the the car in the distillery, um, the you don't need to navigate with the boat. Um, but if you play with controller, then you do. So you end up into those things like getting caught on the on the helmets and stuff. Yeah, it's just something weird about the pathfinding. I don't know. We sail past, though, and we see a what appears to be an empty boat until you f- shine your flashlight at it and it becomes apparent there's two skeletons in the boat. Um, Shannon still can't see these, but Conley can, and he waves to them. Um, to which Shannon replies like, hey, are you feeling okay? Um, and Conley's like, no, yeah, I'm fine. My leg doesn't hurt anymore. It's numb, actually. And and my shoulder too. It's this this old injury I had. I'm feeling great, you know. Not not a no pain anymore. It's all nice, you know. Um, this this is starting to get really fucking dark. Um, so that, that's the thing with like the the hand, right? Like it's it's this old shoulder injury that had nothing to do with the skeleton boys, um, but that has that has skelified at the same time um, as as he's been taken over by this. I think it's like the the shoulder injury. I mean, it's also the case that the the leg injury wasn't actually caused directly by the um, the power company. But I think the thing is that, like, these all sort of relate to work. Um, and, yeah, it's that numbing effect of work, of, of labor that uh, Conway craves, which is taking over his body. Um just becomes nothing more than a, a working machine. Yeah, and th- th- at this point it's starting to get kind of grim, and it's it, it's not clear yet what's going to happen, but it's becoming more apparent that like there's something is being built up to here. Um, as uh, Conway uh, seems to be making peace with the distillery, 
um, and has a feeling that everything is going to work out somehow. Uh, he also suggests that Shannon take the truck because um, he doesn't need it at the distillery. Um, yeah, and he's he's said multiple times in the past that the truck is his home, right? In chapter one and chapter two, uh, we get a lot of that. So, yeah, mm, sad scene. Um, the next thing we pull through is a the bat sanctuary, um, which is I don't know. Like I mean, there there are a couple of plaques here that like uh, recite these bat facts. Um, which are mildly interesting. Also, I mean, I guess they, they do a really good job on the animation of the, the bats fluttering in front of the um, the flashlight. Uh, it does warn that if they're agitated by light, which sets up a thing later where you'll have to turn off the flashlight to get them to calm down. Um, the uh, there, There's not much to some of these things, but like um, it does hint at uh, there being... The sanctuary down here is an artificial managed environment um, that the, the bats are kind of dying from white nose syndrome. And that, like, th- there's a lot of stuff here of, like, um, they're fed on, like, pseudo-moths, like, that are imitations of their natural food. And that, like, the, um, the, the guano that they produce is manually redistributed throughout the cave ecosystem, uh, which gives you a strong sense of this being a kind of absurd environment um, that's, like, just, just too high variety for them to actually maintain. But they're, they're having to keep going with it anyway somehow. Yeah, yeah. Um, Conway sort of reacts to this, like, you know, Shannon's like, oh, well, you know, at least they're taking care of the bats. And Conway says, uh, yeah, who's going to build the people hibernaculum? Maybe we'll build it ourselves. Maybe we already did. Like the folks in the mine, you said they used to buy stuff, fans, canaries, all those little trinkets to make it bearable. There's still a lot of stuff down here. It feels cluttered, but human. I just mean... All people need is enough to pretend we're home and we can make it anywhere. So, I mean, it's, I mean, it kind of reminds me of what the power company has done with the Museum of Dwellings. You know, it's kind of a hibernaculum for people. It's also, you know, just Conway saying, like, I don't have any needs. I don't, I don't, I don't have any personhood. I can make it anywhere. I can make it in the, in the distillery, you know. You can just pretend it's home, and it will be. Yeah, that's. I think. I think for Conway, that's that's more of what he's getting at. I think. I think one could read at least the initial sentence or two as a a sort of communist horizon. Like, who's who's going to build the people people hibernaculum? Maybe we'll build it ourselves, or maybe we already did. Um, there's a possibility of a hopeful interpretation, but I think you're probably right that Conway's is more like, yeah. I mean, I'll just put my feet up in the bunk and drive skeleton truck forever and it'll, it'll all turn out okay yeah uh it is it is definitely like i remember there being a little bit more to this than uh i recall here um so i think it's it's just yeah there's a, i think there's a few different ways you can read it um and it, it there is that that kind of like the people in the mind did make it bearable with these humanizing trinkets but they bought them all from the company store and they still died down there with them so like it's very it's 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 coping right it's it's not really the communist horizon it's kind of coping yeah yeah i think um in in this case yeah it's it's more of that and it's more of that like 
the, the, the bats and their hibernaculum is a managed environment. And what he's really getting at is like capital managing humans, like cattle, essentially. Um, and he's resigning himself to being managed in that way um, as some kind of my, minuscule comfort. Um, whereas, or maybe, maybe that's the dark turn of it. Like you could, may, you could read the line, you know, maybe we'll build it ourselves. Maybe we already did as like, you know, maybe we'll build the better future together. Or maybe, maybe we did, in fact, build a machine to capture us. You know, that's that's. I think that's more in the direction of what's actually being said here. Um, I, I suspect the the communist horizon reading is probably a misreading of what Con, what Conway's sentiment really is here. He just he just doesn't have any desire for communism. You know, he he just wants he wants to live the barracks life. Um, that we saw in, in, in uh, Act Three, where it's just everyone's living on bunks and they're all crowded in there, like a Californian prison or something. I guess, I guess my sort of mis- misreading or the, the the hint of a misreading is maybe more riffing off of some of the stuff that some of the other characters come out with. Um, the references to like home as something we don't need to deserve, and and the sort of vaguely utopian possibilities of Act Five. Um, but I think you're right that, like, for Conway, that's not really him, you know? Oh, I mean, the utopian utopian stuff in Act 5 is very much real and present. There's no question. Uh, it's uh, it's just, you know, I feel like Conway, Conway isn't there. Conway is so far down the other road. Um, he could never live in utopia. He wouldn't want it, you know? He's become just... Uh, utterly servile. Yeah, definitely. Uh, after that, then we pull through to the the central exchange. Um, we see this this wall and a vaulted ceiling and a tunnel. Um, pleasingly, the uh, the tunnel diameter is exactly the diameter of the um, f- flood field of the flashlight as you pull into it, um, which is which is quite nice. Um, it also becomes it's very apparent from the water level relative to the signage that this is flooded up to a, a quite a high level. Um, when we get in there, Shannon disembarks onto um, a little platform that, like, right there beside them is a desk with somebody sitting there. And this is, like, a half an inch above the water level. <laughs> so this immediately gives you the impression of, like, um, the vaulted roof of, like, a train station and the whole thing being flooded up to the mezzanine level. And then there's these folks that have just set up a desk there and are just like, you know, like just, just basically like if, if it floods anymore, they're going to just have their socks wet um, and have to leave. And this this is like, I don't know, this this visual for me it kind of really brought home the razor thin precarity of this whole environment down here uh, specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially when we like hear about what these people are doing. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um so we go over and talk to this person at the desk. It's, it's Dashiel, the person we were told to, um, uh, Kate advised us to have a chat with. He's repairing an old ringer phone. Um, and, you know, Shannon has some advice on this. He's like, oh, yeah, you got to flip that, flip that um, capacitor around. Um, it's a bit of bonding over the circuit board stuff. And Dashiel does tell us that this was a train station that flooded. And the Bureau reclaimed it for use as the uh, central exchange. Um, he tells us a little bit, a bit about his, um, his time with the Crystal Room. Uh, using it to amplify the WebP TV signal. This would have been the crystal room that we saw in the Xanadu um, tape, 
where um, Joseph, Donald, and Lula encountered the skeletons. Um, which is, yeah, it's a fun fun little crossover again. Um, he advises Shannon to visit... Uh, well, he, he, he has the... The spiel that everyone has that, like, oh, yeah, I used to work with Weaver. She was really weird. Um, and advises her to uh, stop off at WebP TV, um, which is at the silo stop, the silo of late reflections, which happens to be the place we're going. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's reminding us that this is... Like, I found this was interesting that, like, it's kind of reminding us that Shannon is actually on a quest of her own. It's not just Conway's uh, journey to Donkwood Drive. Shannon is also trying to find Weaver. And in this act, we've had that reinforced a bit more. And now that we're coming towards the end of the act, they're kind of reiterating. It's like, okay, it's, they're setting us up for what's coming next. Um, and that for Shannon, her, her quest is to seek some sort of information about Weaver, which has to bring her to the uh, Web PTV uh, station. Yeah. And in this uh, section, um, while you're seeing these conversations, um, you can hear the boat engine of the dinghy uh, following along with you as you uh, sort of walk into the distance. Um, uh, but you can't see the boat. Uh, I think that's important to the way that this plays out. Mm-hmm. And this, this is masterful stage direction. Like this is really well assembled um, as a scene. Um, and another one of those examples of like, I, I could fully imagine spending six months deliberating over this whole thing and stitching it together um, in this in this way. It's very apparent where the time went. Um, as we walk further in, there's a little, there's kind of these cute statues of carrier pigeons and a plaque explaining this, uh, these two, these two pigeons that were beloved um, by these, uh, these folks. Um, it, it gives me the vibes of this being, this location being a kind of temple to the various ages of communication technology. We've got everything from the trains through to carrier pigeons, through to these, um, these old analog ringer phones. And then ultimately we'll, we'll find that we're, we're going to get into the AI era uh, later as well. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, it's a story of these, like, carrier pigeons who were sort of put out to pasture, but then they've been trained to be uh, carrier pigeons, so they still wanted to deliver stuff. So people would kind of just, like, give them things to deliver. Like a sandwich receipt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, pigeon breeding, pigeon racing, it's all very much a part of, like, working class history. Um, so I think that ties into that too. Um, yeah. Cause I mean like so much of this is, um, it's a temple to, uh, eras of communication technology, but it's also a temp- it's a temple to communication labor, even in, in animal form. Um, which is something we get more of with Poppy at the back of the room. Um, she's the last operator left with the switchboard, um, way off in the back corner. Um, and her, her story is fascinating, right? Uh, it's all about the, the power company taking over and the skill of the job and automation. Yeah, she was a she was a switchboard operator, um, and uh, so you know at the time when uh, if you wanted to call somebody, um, you the operator would answer, and then you, you would ask them to put you through to the person, and then they would connect you, right? Um, and uh, this is a story of like the power company taking over and automating that labor. Um, and, uh, you know, the first thing that happens is like, you know, they, they're working as a team. She's happy to be on this team. They're having a good time. Um, you know, she really takes pride in her work as like this kind of, uh, you know, 
service with a smile thing. Um, uh, and then the power company takes over and they lay off some of the workers and sweat the labor of the other workers. So then she has to come up with all of these like, um, techniques and, uh, sort of, uh, you know, like using, uh, honey and honey wa- and, and salt water to sort of deal with their throat getting worn out. Uh, I see as we move into the, you know, third hour of a recording <laughs> here. Uh, uh, and, uh, um, you know, she's saying like, oh, people are getting exhausted. It was really hard on their voices, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all this intensification of labor. Um, and then finally, in the end, she's the only one left. And the problem is that the power company wanted to make um the system fully automated, but it wouldn't work because it was this system that was built around the affordances and the capacities of the workers, like their ability to connect the calls, like the, the pace at which they would work. Um, and so they need to keep her on to mimic to, to perform the actions so the, the AI can copy what she's doing. Um, so she's sort of like a kind of like puppeteer or like she's like operating this in parallel with the machine. Um, but she, she she's, has this dark thought, as you've noted here. Um, what if there is no cheap machine that's going to replace me? What if it's cheaper just to keep me here, filling in for the rhythm of the operators? What if I'm the cheap machine? Um, and, you know, this is very, um, very relatable, right? That there are so many places in capitalism where automation could be implemented, but humans are the cheaper machine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually remarkable for me that like um because this this is this this is actually a reminder of the the thought that kind of brought me back to you know, like studying Marx and stuff like that because like I mean I I was uh, an anarchist when I was younger and then kind of drifted off into all sorts of other shit and like got into tech and stuff and I kind of you know put on the hat of like general fucking centrist dickhead for a while and then at some point when kind of like in this this tech world and especially with the automation stuff going on i just i had that kind of thought and it was a kind of a reminder of my earlier kind of days and i was like yeah but like human beings are the cheapest machines you can get often right like and that kind of like was such like something that couldn't be entertained in this in those like tech circles like they just absolutely refused to believe it and then i was like i should really read up on that marx guy again you know that kind of thing and that, that sort of started that drift back towards what would um would ultimately become this project, right? And uh, this kind of like intersection of technology and labor stuff. Is that like, yeah, this in, in that intersection, you do find this very unfortunate fact uh, that is is actually remarked on by by Marx in Capital Volume One, right? He's like, you know, that there are, there are capitalists who will um, who will work a woman to death instead of working a, a mule to death, basically, because you know, and that, that that that's why England has this like most disgraceful squandering of human life because that's that's what capital does. And it's like, um, you know, another sort of example I could think of was in England, how for the longest time they had no inclination to ever make a washing machine 
for laundry because it's like, well, we just get servants to do that. Like they're, they're way cheaper than a machine. Why would you ever do that? That seems silly, you know? And there's so much of that in capitalism. And of course, uh, you know, we've been focusing on this, this very interesting story of labor history. Right. Uh, and our attention to Conway has completely faded into the background. Right. But then we see the, the boat go buzzing, right. That the, the motor starts up again and we see the three skeletons, there's three skeletons in the boat. So the two of them waved to Conway on the way in. And now there are three because Conway has become one of these cheap machines. Yeah. And they, they um, scurry off into the tunnel while Shannon stands there dumbstruck, just like tracking them with the flashlight. Um, heartbreakingly, Blue, the dog, is on the opposite shore and she's padding along next to the boat. You're offered uh, two prompts. Um, one is a skull shape and the other is like a arrow turning around, which basically means that like Blue can choose to either go with the skeletons or turn back and stay with Shannon. Vexingly, the skeleton button is the one that's highlighted automatically uh, on the console. So I, I clicked that accidentally. It's like, fuck, <laughs> I, I wanted her to stay with Shannon. God damn. I did the same on my on my first on my first playthrough. I did the same thing. <sighs> yeah. Oh, well, I'll just have to live without blue this time. Um, but hey, uh, this is a very grim scene because this is the last we'll see of Conway and we don't really see him. We see skeleton Conway. Yikes. He's just become fully skeletified. What a fucking scene. I mean, the way in which it just happens and the transition is like completely outside of your attention. And then they're just gone. They're just going like there. It's it's so much ending with a whimper and not a bang. Right. That there's just there's nothing left there that's human in Conway. He's just you know, he's the, he's a, he's a working machine and nothing else. He completely hollowed out. Um, and also, like, heartbreaking that, like, he doesn't have vocal cords anymore, so he literally can't say goodbye. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's silently just, just pulling away with this little fucking motor going. Ah, yikes. What a fucking scene. Um, again, this, this thing is, it's good with the sledgehammer blows. Like, it doesn't fuck around when it comes to these emotional payloads. Um, yeah, and I think this is really masterfully constructed, but the two things that really stand in contrast for me here are, is the, the rage that's displayed in that monument contrasted with Conway's just very pathetic end. you know, he, comp- he completely accepts his fate and has no autonomous will anymore at all he's just completely subordinated to capital and he he loves his own oppression it's 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 brutal yeah so he's um he's he's the he's the complete opposite of those miners with their sort of proletarian rage at capitalism oh it's yeah jesus this is extremely depressing (laughs) oh yeah I mean, it's it's doubly depressing because it, like, indexes something we recognize that is very real amongst, like, the contemporary uh, contemporary proletarians, right? That, like, in a lot of cases, the, the, the will to fight is 
is, yeah, it's maybe not gone, but it's slipping. Um, and, uh, you gotta, you gotta worry, right? That like, are we all going to end up like fucking Conway at some point that you'll learn to love the subservience or, um, or get obliterated like the miners did. Yeah. The, the, the fear that, uh, Poppy articulates is relatable to all of us who are workers, I think. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's, it's rattling around in my skull most days <laughs> for, for one. Uh, yeah. You know, good, nice one video game for fucking reminding me of that shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, very effective um and uh you get you very much come away from it with that sort of sense that shannon must have of just being dumbstruck um and that leads us into the next scene which is a very strange uh follow-up to it yeah this this one's an odd one right like we get um uh, sam and ida's uh the the restaurant that everyone's heading to um shannon catches up to um, it's a floating restaurant on Lake Letta, um, somewhere along the Echo. Uh, and this is where we get a lot of this physical system stuff, because it's like um, the restaurant is up on stilts. It's like on two le- two levels, and at the very top level is the restaurant, and like the middle level is um, there's this walkway up to it. Uh, and down at the bottom, you have the, uh, the diving bell um, sort of uh, dock, I guess. Um, but Shannon has caught up with the gang, um, waiting on a to-go order. Um, uh, Johnny and Ezra are away in a corner playing a claw game um, and Shannon goes over to them and breaks the news um, and it's it's very like a non-event it's just like Johnny's like hey where's where where's where's the guy and he's like yeah he he he's gone um, I was like oh you can say they took him or that he's he, he left um, which I guess maybe is, is Shannon's ambivalence or like um, mixed vibes on like did did they take him or did he leave both? Because she's she's been questioning his his um seeming not exactly enthusiasm, but like his there's there's something deliberate to the, to this as well on Conway's part that she's always found very upsetting. Um But I I think I always click on the uh they took him option, because it seems it seems more more true. Um yeah, it seems more true to the kind of, like, resentment that she would hold. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't blame Conway, I don't think. Like, she was there when they tricked him into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be quite unusual for him to, for her to, to, like, fully blame Conway. Like, even though, like, I could imagine some residual micro-resentment from her efforts to try to get him to resist... And then him him not taking that bait, maybe. But like, I, yeah, I, I I think the canonical one is that she blames the skeletons. Well, and I think it, it it's good that they give you the option though, because seeing they took him does feel like, you know, this like very minor act of resistance, uh, which you wouldn't have if the line was just there. Yeah. Um... Johnny breaks, uh, kind of explains this to Ezra as he's playing the claw game. Um, I think you, you can you can you can play this and actually win a prize, which is quite nice. Um, I think this time around, I tried to get the little toy octopus and and failed. Uh, but you can get the headphones. I think they work if you try to if you try to do it. <laughs> um, there's something lovely here in that um, Johnny is already starting to take this parental kind of role with Ezra. Like he's he's kind of explaining this news, doing the kind of thing that grown-ups do with kids um 
uh, after they shuffle away to um, they, they, they kind of go back to the, the main area where everyone is and Johnny is you have the option to be kind of explicit about like you know hey look kid if you're not sure what you're doing next you can you can always talk to me and Miss Junebug you know um, which is quite nice um, there's this fun little weird little anecdote of like there's a one of the tables is like there's a half eaten meal on it but it's been shellacked into place it's like a fucking lacquer over the whole thing um, and Ezra's quite perturbed by what that could possibly mean um, yeah and we, we will get the story about that later uh, as to what, what's going on there <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird um, but there's there's a I don't know there's this kind of like heartbreaking little exchange then where it's, it's all quite frank right like that um, you know um, Ezra misses his parents and Johnny's like oh, yeah are you worried about them and, he's, and the two options are either yes it's weird that they just disappeared or no they're gone there's nothing to worry about. I just miss them. Um, and like, I don't know. It's it, it, again, they're, they're fucking gut punching you again with this stuff. Um, but again, the theme of like Johnny really starting to take care, uh, take care for Ezra. Yeah. It's, it's not so bad here because, you know, Johnny's like right there to, to listen and stuff. So it's, it's, it's not as sad as the previous scene. <laughs> Oh yeah, like I mean the the one in Act Two. No, no, the uh, the uh, scene six uh, with the with this exchange. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think um, I think I, I think I misheard you there as being like the the previous time that Ezra like does an emotional dump on uh, on someone as like in Act Two where he's like where he tells Shannon about the his about his parents and like um, this time there's a change though in that like. For for Shannon hearing that, it's still an open question as to what's going to happen to this kid. But now it's a bit more obvious what should happen to him, um, and that that Johnny and Jumug will be there for him, which is which is a nice nice progression. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's totally slightly different from being in the flooded tunnel with um, with Conway just disappearing into the into the blackness. Uh, what happens next? Uh, there's a lot going on in this scene, right? Like there's a lot of little character switches back and forth. Yeah, um, there are. And I think Shannon just, like, goes to sit down to, like, process what's happened. Like, she's she's just kind of in her thoughts. Um, uh, whereas uh, then we get this this kind of conversation of Junebug, I think, uh, with Ida, the uh, one of the owners of the place. Uh, oh, you have to, like, you have to order food, right? And then... Basically, we we end up getting this story about what happened uh, uh, with this shellac table. And it's this weird story of they started this place up. It wasn't doing very well. Uh, Sam didn't know how to catch anything. And uh, so they were just like ordering in food. Uh, like, uh, you know, like seafood and preparing it instead of using stuff that was actually caught from the river and the lake. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so then, you know, Sam was drinking and it, it was just a bad scene. But then these two divers showed up uh, and they were having an eating contest because I guess they were like brothers and they were having an eating contest with each other. And, and they were they were boasting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, oh, I could eat that, I could eat that, I could eat that, I could keep eating. And, and Sam, like, you know, got really animated by this and basically, uh, you know, 
told Ida like you gotta keep cooking you gotta like and like Ida was like oh but I don't I don't I don't know anything's to cook but then the situation got her inspired and just sort of like on autopilot she invented all of these dishes um which she was like oh but like I don't know how I did that I was just like caught in this like flow state fugue of of production so what she did is she shellacked the table of food so that um, she could just like refer to the table uh, in order to know what to make because she she didn't have a recipe or anything. Oh, no. Like, have you heard of a Polaroid? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's very funny. Like, it reminds me a lot of those like, you know, in like Japan where you have the like artificial recreations of all the food that's on the menu that's outside the restaurant uh and it, yeah it's like uh like here's what we have to offer um but uh yeah so that's kind of the story there is 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 that and then basically bob or sorry sam um sam uh listened to the divers boasting about their exploits um, and learned all of these locations where he could go to get seafood um, in his in his diving bell. Uh, and so this is where he learned how to, uh, you know, get the produce that they were going to prepare. Um, so it's this, this strange encounter they had with these divers that saved the restaurant. Yeah. Um, and Sam is returning from a catch here. He's got a little squid that he's caught. He calls him Bob. And he's, he's explaining this to Bob as he walks up the, um, the, the ramp. Um, but like Sam is also afraid that someday he'll get killed by this because he's wondering if they might have put in a false boast somewhere that like would lead him to a bad location um, and, 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 and put an end to him. Um, but for now, they're, they're flying high on this, uh, these, these um, secret locations and uh, hidden delicacies of, uh, of the lake. Um, it's it's interesting as well that like it it seems almost like Ida and Sam have slightly different memories of what exactly saved the restaurant because I think they they both acknowledge each other's component of the story but I think the way Ida tells it it it's the it's the inventive menu that saved the restaurant and where the way Sam tells it it's the emphasis is on the uh ability to catch all these crazy creatures that nobody else knows about um just just related to their own work but yeah I mean what does it all mean? What does it have to do with the rest of this? Who knows? <sighs> I, I think especially given how long this act is, I, th- I think this one, as, as much as I would be loath to cut any of the content, I think this is one that I might have cut on the editing room. I, I might have been tempted to stop with Johnny and Ezra's interaction and then have a little group interaction and then have Shannon go down the walkway. This feels like one shaggy dog story too many. It's just slightly pushing the runtime a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of like this serendipitous story of of, of uh, salvation for this pair. It's a very strange thing to put after the last scene. It's it's like I I don't know. I think I think the thing it really serves to do is to just underline how Conway's passing is a non-event and like the people at the core of this story are our protagonists 
but there are plenty of other stories going on here with their own sorts of protagonists. Um, and like it, it, it does have a kind of decentering effect on Conway's story, which definitely rhymes with uh, like, you know, the way that, that Will frames this whole thing and uh, just the, the strange structure structure of act four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's certainly the case. It does. It does um, remind us that uh, life goes on, and that life has been going on uh, off camera forever. Um, it it just it comes at a time when I am the least interested I could possibly be inside characters. You know, um, this this is when I am most focused on the main plot. Um, uh, but I guess this this does escalate. It, it kind of gives us a bit of breathing room to get, gather some. Um, some tension for this um, this this final bit of uh, leaving leaving the scene, uh, where uh, Shannon just gets up to walk down the stairs uh, to the lower platform. Uh, Emily, Ben, and Bob drift by, uh, singing, "This world is not my home." performance and that how how heavy and leaden the guitar sounds um ah it's just it's beautiful the way this is all put together yeah it's just like it's shannon processing conway's passing and like doing it by herself at the bottom of the uh, uh by the by the boat here um and yeah just feeling very disoriented and shocked and you know sort of dumbfounded and and dealing with uh what conway has done um where it's like yeah i sure would like a home i sure would like some salvation uh and conway couldn't tolerate living in this world um ah yeah this 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 scene is fucking great um it just 
this this is one I'll occasionally just fire up on YouTube, just have a look at again. It's 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 fantastic, um, and it 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 benefits from how stiff and inanimate the models generally are because like Shannon just fucking stands there while while this while this happens, right? Um, yeah, you can imagine the like thousand yard stare that she's she's got going on. Yeah, indeed. Um, but that's the end of that scene. Um, we're back on the boat briefly and down to the next stop off, um, a neighborhood, uh, which is Clara's performance, um, at a, I guess it's a neighborhood of like boat houses or like, f- uh, floating houses that are all moored up. Um, and she's performing what from the, from the roof of the, uh, of the mucky mammoth. It's, it's the, it's the top deck. It's, it's not the roof. It's the top deck. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, it this is so strange though because like the the main the the, the dialogue is between uh, June Book and Johnny um, and they're kind of alternating between memories of a previous concert at a flower shop uh, in which Clara nearly killed everyone by almost vibrating the uh, glass ceiling to to shreds. Um, yeah, it was in a greenhouse and her. Yeah, right. It was in a greenhouse um, and. Uh, it's it's all those kind of memories of those I guess good old times in a way right they're like this this has this has real like early twenties energy of like memories of a gig and like smoking outside and you know chatting with people that kind of thing it's got really that kind of golden glow of the memories is uh, then contrasted with the active dialogue where they're basically discussing Ezra and having him join up um, Junebug is, is, explains that if she has been a bit hesitant it's because Ezra is already a person. Whereas they had become people together, and she's kind of a bit cautious about what that that, that would do to their system. Um, but ultimately, she comes around, and you know, yeah. I mean, it seems like a very strange thing to say about a child. Yeah, children aren't really people, you know. Like, I mean, I've, it's, it's like 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 what? Like Ezra's definitely becoming a person as well, which you know, like matches that. Um, dialogue that the two of them had in the the graveyard right where um what was it she she said that she became more defined right she became became particular or definite what was it specific yeah she became specific and and ezra says i want to be specific too but but then you know she doesn't really seem to have taken the hint so you know johnny kind of johnny kind of needs to give her a push here yes um and I think it's, it, 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 I think the way the dialogue options for these scenes work across this act is like you can you can pick a couple of different dispositions for Junebug on this. Like she can be more or less hesitant. Um, and I, w- I wonder if if this line would make more sense if if one had chosen the more hesitant options. Uh, whereas I I, te- I tend to lean into it and like yeah they're they're way into this. Um, but yeah, it is a strange thing because yeah, you're right. It's a, it's dissonant with the other major scenes where this is addressed. I think like I guess I can kind of understand it to the degree that like a lot of who Ezra is as a person has been built in relation to other people, whereas for Junebug and Johnny, it was very much a like mutual bootstrapping that they did um and like i can understand the sort of insularity of that experiment of of that experience 
Um, which is, you know, relatable in relationships, right? Like if you, it's like, Oh, like, you know, you want to bring someone else into the relationship or you want to have a child or, you know, uh, you make new friends or whatever. Uh, there's a kind of like, Oh, but like, how is this going to change our situation? Uh, question that comes up. So it's, it's definitely relatable. It just feels like, you know, Ezra has been pretty clear about the fact that like, he's still growing as an individual. I mean, what Ezra's what eight maybe or something or 10, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Still very much, uh, in the pupil stage. Um, uh, but then Junebug does come around. She kind of mentions that she got the masters for the new record. And then it's like, they're back and forth. And I was like, Oh, you know, it sounds great, but like, how are we going to perform this live? You know, it's like, we're going to need a third set of hands. And Junebug then suggests that they teach Ezra to play a drum, drum machine. Um, and they seem to be coming to that kind of conclusion, um, which is nice. Um, yeah, the perf- the performance itself uh, didn't really do anything for me. No, it's this it's this like it's the most austere thing you can imagine. It's just like this screeching theremin that like is, is reverberating through this like awful cavernous void. Um, and like it's it's such a weird juxtaposition for like the warmth of the of the dialogue and like especially the the warmth of their past inter, uh, their past memories and the 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 warmth of this new direction they're going in versus this like just shrill um uh theremin performance with like long gaps in between phrases like for tens of seconds at a time Clara will pause and then you know reach back and go and I was like, Jesus Christ. I, I, just, I have to wonder if that was like a deliberate juxtaposition. Because, um, yeah. I mean, theremin's not the most interesting instrument anyway. Um, I mean, I've seen some cool performances on it uh, by people who are incredibly skilled. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really, really hard to get something amazing out of it. And I don't feel like this is amazing. Like, I appreciate the animation work they did here in terms of, like, you know, modeling how you have to play a fairman and how your movements have to be incredibly precise um, in order to hit the notes uh, cleanly. Uh, But, um, yeah, it was of all the musical performances uh, or pieces in in this game, I think this is the weakest one in my in my opinion. Yeah, we don't we don't get many. Well, I guess in, in Act 4 we get um, This World Is Not My Home and Serrano's uh, performance at the Rum Colony, but that feels more like an ambient soundtrack sort of thing rather than a big production blowout thing that they've been doing. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the, the one that is like the most impactful and foregrounded is probably the uh, The World Is Not My Home performance. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um Indeed. Um, so I, I guess before we move on from this one, like it, it maybe it's just me, but it seems unreal that that uh, that a player would not pick up the adoption storyline for Johnny and Junebug. And now I'm kind of curious as to what the dialogue is like if you don't do that sort of stuff. But then I don't know. Well, it I like so what I got in my most recent playthrough is like they kind of talk about the details of the drum machine but they don't bring up Ezra using it. Yeah. 
they're like, oh, well, maybe we could like, uh, you know, tape it to uh, the back of our guitar or something. I don't know why. Like, I think maybe it's because I didn't record enough sounds or something like that might be that might be something that uh, that encourages uh, them to actually like bring in Ezra. Maybe. I I, I have a feeling that the thing that trips it over is probably that in the gas station scene, I I suspect you need to get Junebug to commit to some, to like at least half commit to the idea for it to be carried forward. Because I I don't think in my, in in any playthrough I've done, I've done, I don't think I've done significant recording stuff, things with Ezra. I think it's all hinged on the conversations, especially the gas station conversation. Because like, I think... yeah, I, I definitely seem to follow that line of conversation in those scenes, but interesting, very weird. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, how many how many hidden variables is this, this thing tracking? Um, it, it's a remarkable effect because, like, the, when you're playing the game, you don't get the impression that it's tracking a lot of hidden state. It feels very on rails, even though like you do have the dialogue options and stuff. It doesn't. I guess initially it always felt like your dialogue options were picking backstories more so than picking like future paths of action. But at some point they would have smuggled that in there and started tracking variables that had an impact on how future conversations would go. Um, But then by the time you would realize that, probably by the end of the entire play, you might then realize it's like, oh, hold on, there was was probably a different way that could have turned out. Um... Which is a, I don't know, that's a, that's a great stage magic trick, you know, like just completing the illusion uh, in this in this very convincing way. Yeah, uh, but for myself, I, I, you know, I think the them adopting Ezra is, is really the my head canon. You know, that seems to be it seems to follow from what they do. Uh, yeah, I think that's got to be the canonical one. By by comparison, is the does it feel like the the other options like the um not the non-adoption options are just not not as satisfying as as dialogue well i i, I was just very confused why that happened i was like wait what like we we were talking about these things earlier why did this not happen <laughs> that means that means you're going to have very different options in act 5 and i'm very curious to see how they play out yeah 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 well, like maybe we'll see what happens uh Maybe it needed to be this way, you know. Um, maybe, maybe Ezra will fly away with Julian. Who knows? Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I'm very curious now to see how that turns out in Act Five. Or maybe I just read the dialogue wrong. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I'm wondering now if it just doesn't if it just doesn't present you with that little scene in Act Five. We'll find out. Yeah, wild. Um, so we crawl onwards then to the last scene, which is extremely short uh, at the Silo of Late Refre- Reflections. Um, we get a top-down camera view uh, from a spiral staircase that is leading upwards from this loading dock. Um, it becomes very apparent that they're not going to get the van up the staircase. Um, so they set about uh, unloading the van. <laughs> and we're going to hoof all these antiques up the stairs. Um, I think there's a fun line here where Ezra asks Johnny what antiques are. And Johnny responds with something like, well, they're, they're trash that people like. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, right, is that in this scene, like there was still this very sort of like chummy parental caring relationship between Ezra and Junebug and Johnny. 
So I was like, wait, did I just like miss something? <laughs> like, this seems like they're going to get along. Yeah, th- that's what I think that's probably what has to make it canonical, you know, really, is that like, it feels like that the natural, like, it feels like the real dialogue options are written with that in mind. And the, the like, n- the, the non options, like the other ones are kind of like secondary considerations. Like, that's what really points to it being canonical, you know? Indeed. Um... Uh, I guess, like, Act 4 also kind of... It, 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 this, like, tiny scene at the end and the neighborhood and stuff, it, it kind of has some of that problem that Act 3 had where, it, like, there's so many title cards in fairly tight sequence. Um, but, hey, it's it's the way they get between camera shots, so um, they couldn't break the pattern for uh, for now. Oh, we get the... Um, we just get the, the, the tracking the shot tracking upwards along the spiraling staircase. So we're on our way up folks, literally. Yeah. It's like, as, as they're walking towards the back of the van to like open the door and start unloading, and you just get the panning, the tracking shot backwards of just more and more stairs revealed. Um, it's going to be a hell of a time getting up there. Um, I guess maybe we should say like uh, the silo of late reflections is also mentioned in uh, here and there along the echo as one of these locations. Um, that will will says that like it's a it's a like a vertical shaft that's long enough that you can you know have a conversation with someone and come back years later and still hear the echoes reverberating um hard to know if that's will elaborate uh, just embellishing uh, or if this is some sort of weird magical place yeah we don't get any indication of it when we're here mm. and there's an ominous kind of you know hum or something maybe <laughs> i don't know it's not it's not particularly echoey um but yeah, that is Act Four. It's um, it's a beast. Uh, it's emotionally crushing, uh, but it's a real good act. Um, I think like the the content's real good. With that, I guess that that minor criticism that like I think some of the Shaggy Dog stories could be trimmed and not really lose terribly much. But I guess you can button mash your way through them. So shrug. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very strange to have falling action that runs this long. It's very very strange, um, and uh, you know the time between the release of Act Four and the release of Act Five for this game was very long. Uh, oh my fucking god, <laughs> it was oh crushing, and uh, so it's. It's weird to have such a long act, and then we get to Act Five, which is the denouement, um, which is very short. Uh, which you know, as you would expect, you don't expect the denouement to be long, but you also don't expect the falling action to be long. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, you know, people were a little surprised when they got to Act Five, and they were like, "Oh, oh, that's it. Oh, okay." I was I was quite surprised. Um, I, I I I didn't. I don't know. It was like Act Five was like not what I expected, but then I I don't know what I expected really. You know, like some part of me finishing finishing this here at the end of Act Four. Some part of me expected Act Five to be I don't know some kind of action blockbuster thing where it's like a redemption arc for Conway and like they go rescue him from the distillery or something. Some part of my mind expected that in some way, and like in reflection, that was a very silly thing to expect. But Conway does a cool guy walk away from the distillery as it blows up behind him. Yeah, and it explodes. Yeah, <laughs> and 
Yeah, but like Act Five, I think had the this beautiful quality of being an absolute fucking curveball. And like at this moment, as we're just like at the silo, like ostensibly we're maybe mere yards away from Dogwood Drive, perhaps, but we have no fucking idea what's going to be on the other side of this uh, this staircase. Yes, none at all. Yeah, aside from the the the, the station. Yeah, so it's it's the hint that like Dogwood Drive and the station are going to be close to here. Um, but what what that's going to look like, anyone's guess at this point. Um, yeah, which we will find out in our next uh, episode where we'll cover this interstitial bit. Um, yes. Uh, and what, yeah, uh, it's uh, what is it? Uh, Pueblo de Nada. Exactly. Um, is that the people of nowhere or the people of nothing? Uh, of, of of nothing, yeah. Um, yeah, we're going to do one episode for the uh, interlude and then one episode for the conclusion for Act 5. Um, yeah, uh, we're going to have Bob Neubauer on to talk about Act 5. Um, it's going to be good. Yes, uh, returning to the show, uh, friend of the show. A reigning champion. Hitherto undefeated champion of General Insect Unit. <laughs> 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 we got to get him a boxing medal, you know, a, a fucking belt <laughs> for, for this thing. <laughs> um, how how ostentatious is it that they, those guys don't do medals, they do belts? That's a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and they're they're, they're no they're no small belts either. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Act five is going to be fun. Um, I think having a chat with Bob about, um, I don't know, maybe some of his general impressions of the whole thing uh, will also be fun. Um, yeah, because, you know, as we've mentioned before, act five is, uh, and Pueblo de Nada is a little bit of the sort of communist horizon stuff, but act five is really where we get into that, uh, big time. And, uh, yeah, I like it a lot. It's really good. Um, yeah, I really looking forward to it. Oh, it's a beauty. It's um just stellar. Yeah, I'm 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 thrilled for this. Um it's the the, the writing in that act is fucking stellar and just like the, the technical execution is, is really astonishing. Yeah, wow, what a fucking game. <laughs> this has been this has been amazing. Um we got anything else for act four? Uh, I don't think so. I think, you know, the themes we've talked about, um, and the length we've talked about, the format, all these things, um, it is uh, it is a very strange act, but very impactful nonetheless. Um, and you know, I I'm feeling quite exhausted having covered the entirety of it. I think this is going to be our longest slog, you know, in terms of uh, recording sessions. Yeah. It was an interesting discussion, but it is very meandering and it does take a it take a toll to get from beginning to end. Yeah, it does. Um it uh we're definitely over the hump for recording. Um I I don't know, like act 4 is I don't know, like again, I like a lot of the content. I it it does feel strange and maybe even awkward in some ways. Like it's um because uh because my brain is poisoned by music i kind of think of this as like almost like the awkward fourth album sort of problem that some bands have you know where their first their first three albums are absolute fucking monsters and then they have like an awkward fourth one and then their fifth one fifth sixth and seventh are great again you know maybe that's just a too much of a musical sort of thing Uh, i don't know oh i think that's about right i mean 
I would agree with that because it was a very deliberate choice to make the falling action this drawn out. And that kind of tracks with me uh, in terms of like a band that is making an awkward experiment, awkward experimental album. Like we want to do something different. We're not super sure what that is. (laughs) We can't really like decide so we're just going to kind of like play some stuff and see how it comes out. And some of it's brilliant and other parts of it are like, okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's a fair analogy to what's going on here. It's like the fourth Celtic Frost album or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's not, it's not nearly that bad, but like um, there's, it has that awkward energy to it that uh, to me at least resonates in that way. Yeah, it, it, it is an uncomfortable and awkward experience is how I would describe playing through this act. Um, and, uh, that's not a bad thing, but it is strange. Uh, oh, well, um, thanks listeners for coming along with this on this awkward and, uh, elongated experience. <laughs> um, you can catch us on Twitter at geounitpod. Uh, we're on the net at uh, generalintellectunit.net. Um, and so on. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash general intellect unit, you can give us a couple of bucks a month to keep the uh, skeleton monsters away from the door and to get access to our community discord where we hang around and talk about this kind of stuff. Um, you should also go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows um, such as Swampside Chats from Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science because they are all fantastic. Um, you think there's going to be a new Mortal Science one of these days, maybe? Oh, it'll happen. Yeah, it's it'll 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 happen. It'll be, yeah, we can't we can't do that. The entertainment will get here gag anymore. But you know, <laughs> yeah, you know they're they're working on their own non-capitalist timeline. So mm-hmm. yeah, very like will you know just just drifting. Yeah, it, it it it's a show that requires a lot of um, reading for them to produce. Uh, there's a lot of prep, reading prep for each episode. Like they don't just do one book. They do a, a number of books for each one. Uh, and then there's, of course, the production side of it as well. So, yeah, it's it's good, but it's very, uh, very uh, irregular. And that's OK. Um, I'm looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. I'm gasping for the next one i think maybe i should have less learned my lesson from kentucky or zero and not get so fucking invested in uh, in this stuff <laughs> <laughs> hey we've you know had our scheduling irregularities with this uh with this recording stint on uh kentucky or zero because it is very emotionally difficult to get through this game uh but i feel like we were far more uh punctual <laughs> The, the actual game developers themselves. <laughs> uh, and if, if if you're out there listening to us, devs, uh, we're sorry. We're just we're just having fun. Actually, come on the show. That'd be great. Um, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. We'll do a little interview. Yeah, please. We'll see if we can organize that. Yeah, no, I would love that. Yeah, for sure. They're a secretive and elusive bunch. Uh, cardboard computer. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, again, thanks, listeners. It's been absolutely wonderful. And we'll catch you again in a couple of weeks for Un Pueblo de Nada. Uh, thanks and bye-bye. Yes. Bye.